This morning reading from the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verses 11 to 15. Listen as I read aloud. And Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer self without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated if you're not already there at home. This is a remarkable passage. We had to spend several weeks in it. I think most passages in the Bible are kind of like that, but this one is especially like that. I'm reminded as a 30-something young pastor, also happened to be a professor at a seminary, a young woman who had recently come to know Jesus out of a very kind of secular background. She was enamored with Jesus. She wanted to know everything there she could get her hands on about Jesus. And so she started taking classes at the seminary where I was teaching as well. She was married. Her husband didn't much, have much interest in religion. She had two young boys as well. And they would occasionally come to church with their father, but only occasionally. But she, she was as passionate as you could imagine about this newfound faith. It was only three months after I got to know her, that she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. As a young pastor, I was scared out of my wits. Didn't have a clue what to say or how to say it. I felt like I was simply there watching these events go by. I was really most anxious what would happen to her husband who had no faith of his own? Would he ask that question that mostly we ask in the middle of that kind of an experience? Why God, why Why me? How long, O oh Lord, are you gonna let this happen? But strangely, as we saw her to the grave, he committed his life to Jesus. And I remember words echoing in my ears even to this day when he said, I couldn't imagine facing my own death without Jesus. That's what this passage is all about. That death itself is no longer our enemy because Jesus 
has entered the Holy of Holies with his own life. You know, so it is with us who stand on this side of eternity. How do we face it? How do we face it by ourselves? We know we can't get there on the other side without help, through our own efforts. The Bible prepares us to begin to ask these questions all the way back in the time of Moses with the institution of the priesthood. The priest was the one that pointed ahead to eternity, a kind of mediator, if you will, between God's people and God, between time and eternity. But they they could never actually get you across that bridge. Hebrews 9, the passage we just read, is all about priest. It's kind of hard across the book of Hebrews, and especially in this chapter, to bring that to life in a time like ours. In the back of our minds, what, what are the connotations of the priesthood? Probably in a place like Boston, we're living in the shadow of the abuse scandal of the Roman Catholic Church and how many no longer will darken the door of a church because of that story. We also have a hard time believing in religious kinds of people in an age like ours that lacks a sense of the sacred. We yearn for something transcendent, something meaningful beyond the immediate, but we don't ordinarily experience it. Charles Taylor has famously called it the secular age, an age without a sacred, a sacred moral order. Everyone decides what is good for themselves. There are no universal moral principles that guide us. The great irony, many of the ironies anyway, that we believe in universal human rights, but there's no basis for believing in them if you don't believe in any universal moral principles. In a place like Cambridge and Boston, many of your neighbors are avid supporters of justice. And it, that's a very good thing. But without universal moral principles, there is no basis for justice. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In a time of science, we believe in facts, but we also believe you shouldn't impose truth upon anybody else. All these strange ironies, once you remove God, you're left with all these tensions. So we turn to this passage now, this remarkable text. It's really the story of the whole Bible, right packed here in four verses. It's a reminder also that not only is the whole Bible contained in this little verse, it's also our story that God has entered into and retold on his terms. You know, last week we said uh, you could divide the Bible into three parts, pretty basic parts, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Most stories are like that. In the beginning of this book anyway, everything is the way it's supposed to be. 
the middle, the, the biggest chunk of the Bible, things are not the way they're supposed to be. But we have a glimpse of the end when everything is put right, but not as expected. The beginning, the middle, and the end. The beginning, the creation story. God created us in the garden, in his sanctuary, and everything in it was to reflect him. Our work, our relationships, we were images, reflectors of God. That little Hebrew term, salem, we were the salems of God, the images of God, a simple word picture. We are, in that regard, what we reflect. We were called to reflect God and to honor what he honored, to delight in that which he delights in. But we know the story didn't go that way for very long. The corruption of the image, that is us, occurs in mysterious ways. The image bearer begins to live as if they are the center. The image is here turning the language kind of upside down. The image creates images of their own to which they worship. They chase after these images, these gods, for their safety, for their significance. In the ancient world, the gods had concrete forms, little statues you'd bring to the altar. We don't do that so much in our own time, but we live in a time of idols that surround us every bit as much as the ancient world. Our gods tend to be ethereal, abstract, things like money or power, or sex, or beauty. However you describe it, the corruption of the human heart has taken place. Somehow there's a dysfunction inside of us that is systemic then among us. I'm reminded of that really terrible movie, but it's well worth watching again if you've never seen it, 2002, called Simone starring Dustin Hoffman, a whole host of other pretty significant figures. It, it was not a great movie, but, but as it played out, there was something remarkably similar uh, as to what was going on in the Bible. Dustin Hoffman plays a bankrupt movie director, and his, all of his latest films have been a flop. And his former wife is about to fire him unless he makes a movie that will actually be a box office success. That's the plot line. And out of nowhere comes this young, beautiful starlet. Her name was Simone. She had the face of Audrey Hepburn, the smile of Lauren Bacall. Her body looked like it had been sculpted by an artist. She moved like Madonna. She had a Greto Garbo-like allure. She had breathtaking presence even if not much acting talent. And she would simply overshadow every other actor or actress in the movie. By all accounts, she was too good to be true. And in fact, she was. She was simply computer-generated, brought to life by the director's creativity, created for the silver screen, if you will, 
by a sophisticated computer code. And the audience inside of the film considers her larger than life. They worship her. She becomes far more important than Dustin Hoffman, and he becomes jealous of his creation. And so the whole movie is about how he's trying to destroy the very thing he's created that has recreated him in its image, that which he yearned for. Now, the audience outside of the film is aware of the satire that's going on, but they're mostly unaware of the film of their own lives and of the things they have been chasing after for their own significance and their own safety. Therein is the story, I think, of the middle part of the Bible, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Well, the final chapter, as we hinted at last week, was when God puts things right, but not in the way we expect. The first clue of the beginning of the end is actually way back near the beginning with Abraham. The small picture of that final chapter in the story. What we're expecting is that Abraham's got to clean up his act if he's going to be acceptable to God, if he's going to find a way to eternity, to be reconciled. And if the problem is his own corruption, then the answer must be that he's got to clean up his act. But strangely, that's not how it plays out at all. It doesn't happen that way. God actually doesn't place obligations on Abraham to live up to the terms of the covenant, to this relationship. God mysteriously bears the consequences of Abraham's corruption. It's absolutely mysterious to Abraham. I'm utterly convinced Abraham doesn't know how this works, but he believes. He trusts what we call faith in God. And it's reckoned to him, as Paul will say, repeating that verse out of Genesis, reckoned to him as righteousness. He's put right, but not in the way we would expect. And so as we move forward through this passage, three parts as we talk about the end. The place where things are put right, the means by which they are put right, and the consequences for you and I in these realities. The place. Hebrews 9, in context, is all about Hebrews 4. And Hebrews 4 is all about the book of Exodus. And so in many ways, keeping a finger in Hebrews 9 takes us all the way across back to Moses. There we are with Moses again. In the beginning with Moses, we get a glimpse of the place where things are going to be put right. God gives Moses, if you will, a liturgy of redemption, a fancy way to say, he gives them a bunch of reminders of how this thing's gonna work out. We have many liturgies of our own redemption. Memorial Day, we celebrate all those who have given their lives for our freedoms. Or Martin Luther King Day, we celebrate the civil rights movement and the 
relief of that historical narrative that had burdened African Americans in this country for so many centuries. We celebrate those events that brought refreshment, renewal, yea, even redemption. So it was in the time of Moses that the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was that day of redemption. The tenth day of the seventh month celebrated every year. And the high priest, as a representative of God's people, would go into that inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, the place where God resided. Now, the strange thing is, God is everywhere. But somehow, mysteriously, God is also there uniquely. He is omnipresent, everywhere present, but redemptively present in specific places. That's what the Holy of Holies represented. And he would go into that place with blood. The blood of bulls and goats, that imagery lost on us, surely. The Holy of Holies is clearly a picture of heaven. No doubt about it. From the time of Moses onwards. It is patterned after what Moses saw on Mount Sinai when he was with God. He was in God's presence, but he did not see God. He's awestruck, he's overwhelmed. And in the Holy of Holies, patterned after that experience on the mountain with God, in the Holy of Holies, in the middle of the tabernacle, later in the temple. There was to be no light, no windows, if you will, for God's glory was its light. There were cherubim, these strange creatures we know virtually nothing about other than they guarded the presence of God. And somehow together they formed a throne on which God was to sit invisibly because God could not be seen. And at his feet, if you will, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. His law, his word, as the governor, the Lord of the whole universe. That's all these signs and symbols in the Holy of Holies. And Israel understood you just don't go there nonchalantly. In fact, you don't go there ever. Only one person gets to go there, and only once a year. And he takes with him blood, a bloody sacrifice. This is the place where the story is going to be put right. The greater need, clearly, which it points to is that the story has to be put right, not simply here on earth, but in eternity. You know, unique among all the religions of the globe, surely, is the Christian understanding that God's home has come to us. We have not found a way to it. It really is unique. The earth will not provide 
our eternal aspirations, the fulfillment of our eternal aspirations. They will not provide our safety and our significance. No matter how hard we try, earthly speaking, they will not do it. Even the promised land in Israel could not fully satisfy their deepest aspirations. A land of milk and honey, a land of plenty. But still, there's grumbling. So it is with us who have so much. Why do we grumble? Because that which we have does not satisfy our deepest longings. Deep down, we know that, that our earthly strivings will not bring that final rest our souls yearn for. Try as hard as we do, we cannot create our eternal home. No matter how much money you have, how successful you might be, how beautiful you appear to be, it is fleeting and fragile. We know that deep down. It could change in a heartbeat. It's never enough. But we keep chasing after it. The unbelievable reality is that God grants to us a place, a place where our deepest aspirations are actually fulfilled, a home. Well, how do we get there? What's the means by which things are put right? Point number two. The clue clearly in Hebrews 9 is the animal sacrifices that the author is referring to back from the book of Exodus. It seems almost barbaric to us, doesn't it, in a time like ours, that animals would be sacrificed and their blood spilled as a sign that somehow things were going to be put right with the blood. But God was communicating quite clearly that the awfulness of the corruptions, the dysfunctions of our own hearts required severe measures dire consequences. There was a moral fabric, if you will, to the universe. And when it was broken, justice could not simply be set aside. We see hints of that even in our own day in the yearning, the movements for justice. It runs so deep in our soul, we yearn for it. it except when it impinges upon us. We, we, we want it, but not so close sometimes. In a secular age, the only moral taste bud, the term from Jonathan Haidt's uh, work, uh, uh, social psychologist from NYU, talks about the, the loss of many of our moral taste buds in the secular age. And what's left is the single moral taste bud of harm, what he calls harm and care, whereby anything is permissible as long as you don't harm someone else. It sounds almost convenient, but it doesn't work. We want justice, but justice can never be relative. It never can be arbitrary. It can never simply be defined by what I want. So it is with mercy as well. It can never simply be arbitrary. Well, back to these bloody sacrifices of Hebrews 9 and the book of Exodus. Blood, it's almost a cliche for those of us in a place like this, isn't it? 
We say we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. It's a foreign language to our neighbors here in a place like Cambridge. What in the world are you people talking about? And we must be sensitive to that reality. It doesn't make much sense in a time like ours. And yet think how graphic that language was in its original context. And how different our context is. Blood was a sign of life and of death. It pointed to eternity beyond the grave. I remember many years ago sitting under a tree with some elders in a small Zimbabwean village up in the mountains of southern Zimbabwe. And in a very traditional village, the women were off on one side making the dinner. The men sat around the tree after a 10-hour worship service. It was a Christian village in southern Zimbabwe. The traditional ways had been followed for centuries, I suppose. And one of the elders motioned to us through a translator that dinner was being prepared. And I turned around, I remember very clearly, a very large woman with a goat, the rope around his neck being led to the back of the little uh, kitchen area, an outdoor kitchen area. And this very large woman had a very large knife also. And as I turned, and my eyes just couldn't turn away, I saw the legs of the goat being tied together, and the, the knife almost too gory to imagine, slitting the goat's throat. I got sick on the spot. Uh, no way I'd be eating dinner that night. I, I, I'd never been around that sort of experience. I confess I had eaten plenty of meat growing up, but it was the sort of meat I went to the grocery store already prepared for me. Hamburgers or hot dogs. Never so graphically as I did that day realized that an animal would be killed if I was to eat. You know, many of our practices surrounding life and death have been sanitized. And we have a false sense of life and death. If you grew up on a farm, blood was very much a part of your ordinary experience. But for those of us who are city kids, that's just not the case. Most of us live in a sanitized culture that hides from death. Though one of the terrible ironies is that in a virtual culture like ours, violence is everywhere present. Kids will, in an ordinary day, see 10 murders on television. And yet death itself has been sanitized in our own experience. God is built into our consciousness, I think, no matter how much we resist moral taste buds that have to do with justice and mercy. They run deep in our souls, whether we consciously affirm it or not. Our conscience, as uh, uh, verse 14 says, testifies to that reality. And our conscience tells us that we are dirty. 
We smell dirty. There's a kind of defilement that has taken place. And we need to clean ourselves. But try as hard as we might to get things right, it doesn't last. Why would blood cleanse us then? The blood of bulls and goats was surely but a ceremonial cleansing. It made people ritually clean so they could stay in the land. But it didn't really change their hearts or their lives. It was a little bit like trying to come to church to negotiate with God. I I do my part, God. You do your part. Nominal religiosity abounds in Israel as it does in our own time. And we desire that proverbial religious shower at the end of a sweaty and dirty year to somehow get clean. But those are only signs of this deeper reality. Our half-hearted religious practices will not cleanse us. No matter how good you think you are, it's not. It's not enough, and you're not really as good as you think you might be. Jesus talked about the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees. Pretty powerful language, pretty provocative language. That's true for all of us. Whitewashed tombs. Hebrews 9, though, the climax of this great big story, from where things were the way they were supposed to be to the way things are not the way they're supposed to be. And now, finally, things are going to be put right. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, verse 11, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of creation. He did not enter by means of blood of bulls and goats. But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The analogy with the Old Testament system of sacrifice is striking here by way of contrast. How different it is. Jesus is the holy of holies. He is the place and the presence of God. But Jesus is also the high priest, the bridge between God and God. And his people. He is also the sacrificial animal offered for the sins of the people. He is also the scapegoat on which their shame has been placed and cast out. Jesus' death puts to death death itself. That's a tongueful. He dies once. For all, Jesus puts things right in the most unexpected way. The consequences then for us. God has declared us clean. We still feel dirty because we still are. But Christ's blood is the covering for our sin, for our dirt. God sees us through the blood of Christ. And we are united to that reality by faith. We cling to it as our only hope. It is our only hope. And it happens in our lives not once, as if somehow you believe and then you get on. 
it is to happen every day of our lives that we cling to this as our only hope, by faith. Jesus dies once and for all, but our faith is not one and done, but every day. So my encouragement is to find those places in your own experience where you just stand in awe and realize that what you see is not all that is. It points beyond the realities of our everyday experiences. And what they point beyond has actually come to you already in Jesus. This is finally mysterious, isn't it? It in one sense doesn't make sense, and yet it's absolutely knowable. It's concrete. Jesus' death is both finally mysterious and gruesomely concrete. It's a common phrase in the Lynn's household. We say it almost all day on Fridays. It goes like this. It's a simple one. It's Friday, Eugene. There's no member of our household that is named Eugene. Eugene was a neighbor of ours. He was part of our carpooling when we would take, Anne would take the kids to middle school in the morning. And Eugene was a near neighbor, a fifth grader, a son of Russian immigrants, and he had no friends. He was always sort of glum. Uh, and Anne would try to cheer him up, reminding him that the end of the school week was here. It's Friday, Eugene. Mostly it didn't work. Uh, but it became symbolic in our family of the joy of a week that was almost over. Most of, experience, most of us experience work that way, don't we? We look forward to the consummation, the end, the, the, the final part, a sequence leading to a conclusion, especially if it's been a difficult week. We're grateful that it's over. I don't know what your week has been like this week, but there's a kind of rest that comes at the end. It's built into us. The story this morning obviously evokes memories of another Friday. We celebrated it during Holy Week, the final Friday of Jesus' life. And the emotional rhythm of that week turned everything upside down. It began with a virtual parade of Jesus' messianic identity. The, the crowd shouting Hosanna. By the end of the week, they're shouting crucify him. The week started with joy and ended with grief. And the disciples inevitably asked why. Why, God, did you do this to us? As if somehow God had let them down in taking away Jesus. We ask that in our own dark moments, maybe especially at the end of a very bad week. Hopelessness and despair are often our companions, aren't they, on the journey? Is there anyone out there, we say to ourselves, anyone out there that really cares about me? The strange irony of the gospel is that Jesus' death puts a final nail in the coffin of your despair and my despair. On that garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, God takes our filth and places it on Jesus. Our despair becomes his despair. And as Hebrews 9 narrates the story, this is actually taking place in eternity. Heaven itself is present there at Golgotha. It is a cosmic event, 
Sometimes it is only when we stare into our own despair that we recognize there must be someone else who solves it. God alone can take away the sting of death in his death. Jesus' death somehow mysteriously puts things right. Not as we would have expected, though. The story is too strange, too incredible, and too true to have been invented by any of us. Amen and amen. Appropriate now that we turn to the Lord's Supper. That meal that we celebrate every week, tangible bread and juice. A sign, though, that points beyond themselves to eternal realities. Those eternal realities have come to us, and as we take the bread and the juice, heaven itself enters into our lives. And we now have access to the holy of holies, to God, because of Jesus. Let me pray as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. O oh Lord, our God, grant to us, we pray, eyes that see Jesus when we take this bread and this juice. May we hear your words in our ears afresh, that these are the signs of life itself, and give us hearts to embrace the